family, and welcome to Normal with Autism, the podcast where we are walking with faith on this side of the spectrum, and we are inviting you to the kitchen table to experience the joy in the journey. I'm Tara. I'm Sarah. And uh, hello. How are you, Miss Sarah? I'm good. How are you? Good. Welcome, everybody who's listening, and... Um, I don't know. It's hot here in Ohio. What's going on with you? Um, it's very hot. I just got home from a three, I was going to say three hour walk, which is what it felt like, but it was a three mile walk. Caleb has decided that he wants to be a skater. So we walked to the skate park and back, which was a lot further than I thought it was. And it was very hot and very sweaty. But it all worked out. And I got some exercise. Hashtag self-care. Yay. Exercise is important. That's good. Um, I'm glad to hear Caleb has something fun going on. Yeah. Yeah. Something besides video games. Hey, that's that's important. That is important. I understand that. So that's It was so cute, though, because he's very like he's very much my cautious one. So uh, there was a ton of people there and they're all like grinding and like ollie-ooping I don't even know what they are doing and Caleb's just like very slowly riding his scooter like up a ramp and then he stopped at the top of it and I don't know he's just like so cautious and it was so cute whereas Owen would be like I don't know tearing things up if he was there (laughs) but it was adorable oh that's awesome um well we went swimming today so we had a good time doing that Yeah. Good day for it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to be pretty much that way, like, the whole week. Um, I was looking, and it's looking pretty crappy right now, so, but it's going to be just hot, hot, hot. Unless you love hot weather, then you're in your element. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, Well, I am excited to kind of jump into things tonight because we have another special guest joining us. And I'm going to go ahead and introduce her real quick. Uh, Her name is Maria, and she is the founder and CEO of Autism in Black, Inc. Um, And the organization that she runs aims to bring awareness to autism spectrum disorder and reduce the stigma associated with the diagnosis in the black community. Um, She's a licensed therapist. I'm excited about that. Um, Maria primarily works with parents to provide support through education and advocacy training. Her passion for working in the field stems from her personal journey with ASD when her daughter received the diagnosis at a very early age. So Maria, welcome to Normal with Autism. Hi, thank you both for having me. I'm excited. I am so I know. I am so glad you're here. I reached out to you and I was like, as I emailed you, I was like, please say yes, please say yes. And you did. (laughs) She so Tara texted me and was like, um, this is who we have for our next guest. And I was like, What? Because I follow you on Instagram. And I was like, You got Maria? Like I was so happy. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm actually excited to be on when I received the email. I was like, oh, my gosh. So it was it was mutual. <laughs> oh, yay. That's awesome. And um, I was excited to have you because um, you also have a podcast. 
Yes. The and I, yes. yeah, could you um, maybe start there, like introducing yourself and then and telling us a little bit about the podcast? Sure. So um, as Tara said, I am a licensed mental health counselor in Florida. Um, and I own Autism and Black Inc., which is an organization that supports Black parents who have a child who is diagnosed with autism, um, supporting them through various means. And then we also train um, organizations to be more culturally uh, responsive to the Black disability uh, community. And um, an extension of what we do is the Autism and Black podcast, because I like to try to reach my audience in many different forms. Um, and podcasting is just another form to get the information to our communities, because a lot of times we are getting the wrong information to our communities or no information at all. So I like to make um, the information as accessible as possible to my followers so that that is how the Autism in Black uh, podcast started. And we have different topics that we cover, um, you know, anything from law to um, actual having um, psych psychologists on there. We've talked about shame-proof parenting. We've talked with other moms who uh, are doing great things in the community. So we cover a lot of things that normally um, our communities wouldn't have access to. So awesome. That is wonderful. And um, what I appreciate about your answer there is that you were saying that it's just one of the avenues that you use to get information out to your parents. Um, what are some of the other avenues that you use besides the podcast? Um, social media is, is a big one. Um, Instagram is, is a huge one. And then um, I also do... Um, depending on the month, free webinars um, covering different topics. The last ones that we did, we covered um, IEPs and, and the pandemic, anxiety, uh, social skills, and, and self-care. And then we're also, we'll be gearing up for our next one um, sometime this month in July on ADHD and some other topics. Nice, nice. Um in your um, podcast, I got to listen to a couple of episodes that you had posted up there. And where's your podcast available at on iTunes? Yes, on most podcast streaming platforms. You can also go to my, my website um, and there's a, a tab there. Um, there's Google Play is, and all the other ones as well. I can't think of them off the top of my head, but season three will also be on um, YouTube as well. Oh, nice. You'll have somebody filming that for you and putting it up there for you? It will be the, just the audio. Just the audio. Okay. Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, so um, the when I was listening to a couple of episodes of the podcast um, and you were doing um, some of those um, topics that you talked about, um, in one of them you talked about... Um, focusing on the black parent experience, especially at this intersectionality of, of autism. Can you tell us um, a little bit more about what that means to you, the black parent experience? Sure. So um, with it being the black parent experience, we experience things extremely different. Um, and then adding on raising a child with a disability 
you know, that experience is, is completely different for our communities. We have stigmas that we have to deal with not only in our community, but outside of our community um, that cause a lot of barriers. So our experiences are so unique and different just because we're Black. So we're Black first and then everything else you know, is next. So when we're talking about diagnosis, when we're talking about, um, you know, a support system, those things um, we have to navigate differently. One, because we're black, then because we have a child who has a disability or a diagnosis. Yeah, and I, you know, I hear you saying that in terms of you have stigma inside the community and then stigma outside the community. Um, mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit more about those two things, kind of comparing and contrasting them? Sure. So when we're looking at stigmas outside of our community, we're mostly looking at healthcare professionals and how they view us. Um, studies have shown that, you know, actual physicians don't even want to talk to black moms about autism, you know, because of the stigmas that are against us when we're talking about uh, black parents being loud, aggressive, um, you know, only in it for trying to get a check. Um, other stigmas that they have against us. When, you know, we lack intelligence, we won't understand what they're saying to us. Um, so healthcare providers don't even bother to um, have conversations with us because of the stigmas that they already have when thinking um, about us. And then when we're looking at access to resources, uh, when it comes to our communities, as I was saying, we don't get the information of how to access the resources or to know about certain things. So that puts us at a disadvantage. Um, when we're looking at stigmas within our community that we have to deal with, um, one is the stigmas against um, disabilities and having a child with a disability. You know, um, a big anchor in the black community um, is religion. And when we're talking about religion and and trusting in God, that means that, you know, accessing therapy or anything like that can be looked at as um, you don't have faith in God. Um, we're talking about, you know, when, when our children are with uh, family members and we're noticing um, delays, we get things like, oh, just give that baby time to catch up, you know, things like that, you know, so we have our own stigmas that we have to deal with within our community, you know, like, you know, discipline, you can beat the, the autism out of a child. We all know that that's not true, but these are things that we have to deal with in our community. Um, when we have a child who has a disability, then on top of it, having to deal with the stigmas outside of our community that we're trying to navigate and just get over these barriers to having access that other communities have. Thank you for making that um, so clear, because I think um, like in a small way, I had I'm a mental health professional like you. Um, hang on just one second. All right, 
Luckily, we have a very good editor. <laughs> um, so getting back to this, I, I appreciate your explanation for that um, because I'm a mental health therapist like yourself. And um, I think I had like some some awareness, like a very small piece of awareness with this um, in terms of the stigma, the discrimination um, that folks in the black community face when it comes to healthcare. Um, I mean, I remember taking the cultural um, awareness classes that we had to take when I was training to get the master's degree and the licensure and that kind of thing. Um, but hearing you explain it the way you did and talking about just kind of the, the hoops and the layers that you have to go through to even get a diagnosis makes it way more clear um, than I think really anything that I ever really learned about in those classes that I took. I mean, it was kind of 20 years ago, not to date myself, but um, it just, it, I don't know, it's just really clear the way you explained it. And I appreciate you doing that for us and kind of giving us a, a, a real picture of the challenges that you face, not only when you're going to the doctor saying, hey, something's going on, but then also going back into your own world and saying, like, something's up with my kid. And then having people talk to you about, like, praying the autism away or something like that. Yeah, and, and church hurt is, is definitely big in our community when it comes to having a child with a disability. You know, I've had clients come to me and say, um, you know, the, the pastor said we're going to pray the autism away. And of course, we know that is not going to, you know, take this diagnosis away because it's part of who they are. So when the child is still autistic, then the pastor says to them, you know, it's your sins that has caused this. So because you have sinned, now you have to deal with this. You know, and these are things that we have to, to face in our community and deal with, you know, when the pillar of a lot of, you know, for black families is religion and to now have to deal with, you know, oh, they're saying it's my fault that my child is autistic when we already know as parents, guilt and shame is something that we deal with. Mm -hmm. And like, it's not, um, like we say this all the time on our podcast, autism is not a tragedy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, just because someone is autistic doesn't mean they need, you know, autistic people don't need to change. We yeah. need to change the way that we treat autistic people and, you know, the services that we can offer and make the world more accessible for them. They don't need to change who they are. Exactly. And, you know, as I, as the black community, we don't get the, the correct information on autism. So it's seen as something that is the big scary boogie monster because mm -hmm. we don't get the right information. And it's a reason why I am so, so vocal, you know, about having a child who is autistic, um, being a black woman um, who's married to a Haitian um, male, you know, we are very vocal about our experiences and, and parenting um, just so people know that it is okay. There's nothing to be ashamed of um, when it comes to your child. Because the last thing I want is my child to grow up and, and think we were trying to fix her as if something was wrong with her. Right. Yeah, that's, and, and I appreciate you saying about the church hurt. 
because there's mm-hmm. no kind of hurt like church hurt. Um, yeah. Sarah and I are are actively involved in our church here, and um, yeah, it just having those kinds of experiences at church where people are saying like, you know, there's something wrong with your child and you feeling shame for that is probably the worst, the worst kind. So that resonates with me when you say that for sure. I've kind of graduated from shame to like indignation (laughs) (laughs) over the years. Um, So now I can be like, well, actually, let me tell you what, (laughs) and try to educate them. Um, But yeah, but, you know, that takes energy and, you know, it it takes something out of you to do that. And, you know, again, I don't know. I just, I want everyone to just understand, like, there's nothing wrong with our kids. Yeah. And, and, you know, culturally, um, when it comes to those who are in, Um, positions of power culturally as black individuals we are taught not to you know go against what they're saying because they are the professional so when we're looking at you know our pastor who is telling us this or we're looking at a physician who has went to school and trained um, for this and they're saying oh no your child's fine or you know your child has a um, diagnosis of behavior rather than autism, you know, we're taught not to, to go up against that. You know, me advocating for my child the way I did is not something that I was taught. You know, it's something that I had to learn to do. So, you know, in the black community, when it comes to certain things like that, it's very difficult because we're, we are, you know, taught not to be disrespectful to those who are our elders or who are professionals. Mm-hmm. Uh That makes a lot of sense. Um, In terms of kind of the 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 anti-racism movement and moment that we're in right now and and the social justice work that's that's starting to happen. um, Can you talk a little bit about the the culturally responsive training that you do? Um, You know, kind of what is it and what makes it so important for individuals and organizations to have that kind of work um, that you would do to to bring that to those folks? Sure, so I uh, provide a culturally responsive training and what makes our training different is that we specifically focus on um, the black disability community. Uh, It's often forgotten about when doing culturally responsive trainings. You know, it's a whole world out there that people don't even think about. Um, So our training focuses on that. You know, first we talk about uh, the biases that we have, um, that have been ingrained in us as individuals who, you know, have our own culture um, and how we grew up and that's what we know. So first we have to talk about those biases that can be harmful. Um, Then we talk about, you know, racism and microaggressions and and things like that and what that is. And then we move into um, talking about the intersection of race and disability and how that impacts the black um, community from both sides of being an actual parent or caregiver navigating and being the actual individual who has a disability and navigating that. Um, and then, you know, we, we create a plan of action on how to make your organization um, anti-racist and more inclusive. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned to us before we started talking um, here, you know, on this episode right now, you talked about how you've seen an increase in the demand for the work that you do. Yes. So we have um, went from, you know, maybe one training a month and, you know, this month we've gotten seven um, organizations, you know, hiring us to to complete the training, which is great. Um, I'm happy people are finally, you know, tapping into these types of trainings because it's needed. Um, There are going to be individuals who work for you who have a disability. You're going to, especially if you're um, working in the field like we are of uh, mental health, then of course you need to know how to culturally respond to your clients and their families because a lot of times just trying to apply an intervention is not going to work when it comes to a Black family because again, we have all of those barriers that we're first trying to deal with before we can even get to um, interventions. So, you know, knowing these things and and being aware of them just makes your organization better, makes you a better clinician, uh, makes you a better person. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, one of the things that um, I know is mental health speak that, um, you know, we're kind of familiar with is meeting the client where they're at. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it just makes so much sense that if you don't have some type of um, the cultural responsive training, some type of anti-racism work happening for you, either as an individual or in your organization, it's going to be really hard, I would think, to meet people where they're at, especially if you're serving um, either black, indigenous, or people of color, and and you're a, a person who's a white provider. Um, mm. I can imagine that would make it pretty difficult. Yes. Um, you know, an example that I, I give, you know, in trainings is that, you know, we're so focused on our path and trying to fit people in our path that we don't think, oh, we need to kind of be flexible within our path and go to um, somebody else's journey and see what it's like in their experience. We're so focused on, you know, you have to fit in here and, and, and do things how, you know, I've learned and how this is how it goes instead of being flexible to to meet people where they are and understand where they're coming from, from their perspective. Yeah. Can I ask you, do you, are, oh, I mean, the, the wider world in, in general has, um, unfortunately or fortunately, only really woken up to this kind of work in like the last month, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's all over social media. It's all over the news. Um, I mean, the work's been going on since forever. Um, but do you feel or do you, in your perspective, do you have... I don't know, does it give you hope? Do you feel like things are actually trying to meaningfully change right now? Um, I think what's different about this one is that how long 
the momentum is, is lasting because you know this as as you said mm. this starting in 2020 we've had you know countless um black individuals just be murdered and we are returning to a hashtag and for that moment you know the focus is is there but then life goes on you know for everybody that's not a black individual life goes on you go back to to you know your routines but what's different about George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and what's going on is that the momentum is carrying on longer. So that gives me hope, um, you know, that people are listening and want to actually make a difference um, and actually do the work because the work is hard. You know, I understand, Mm -hmm. you know, having to deal with um, confronting biases that you've learned and known all your life and then to be told, you know, that is not quite right. That's a difficult thing to deal with you know, for anybody. So I get that the work uh-huh. is difficult, but actually put uh, putting the effort in to do the work and, and seeing the changes that are happening, that's what's giving me hope in this time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Um. Yeah, it's so cool. Like, it feels like a revolution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like we're part of history. Yes. Like, I'm trying really hard to pay attention mm-hmm. to what is happening because like my grandkids are going to ask me about this one day. Yeah. Yeah. This is definitely going to be in the history books. And, you know, I, I say the younger generation, are they're definitely different because they are really out here, you know, advocating and making a, a change. And, you know, we are all here for it. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, You, in addition to the responsive training, the culturally responsive training, the podcast, um, being on social media, providing, you know, the videos that you provide and like the webinar trainings and things like that, you provide a variety of um, support to your clients through all of that. Of, of all the work that you do, um, What's kind of bringing you the most joy right now? Um, I think anytime I see a parent, a black parent, make an appointment um, to better advocate for their child, that brings me joy because, again, we're not taught to do those things. Um, so when I see a parent, that's like, you know, I really... I really need to do this, especially within the school system, because navigating the school system and IEPs and advocating in that realm is very difficult and very intimidating. Um, and usually when we're advocating in that um, that framework and that network, we're advocating, advocating for our child um, against people that don't look like us. So they're not black, you know, so that in itself is like, okay, you know, very different. <laughs> so anytime I see a, a parent make an appointment, I, that just makes me excited because they're, you know, they're trying to make a change for their child. That's really wonderful. And um, I could hear, <laughs> I could hear the smile in your voice as you started to talk about it. And that just makes me happy to know that, you know, you are out there and you are um, bringing people into the knowledge and the awareness and you're, you're helping to make a child's life better and their family's life better. And that's, 
that's exciting. That's really, really wonderful. Yeah. Um, and that work you're doing is so important. Like, I hope you realize how important it is. Um, we get emails all the time from people that are like, my kid was just diagnosed. What do I do? Where do I start? Mm-hmm. Who do I contact? And I can only imagine, you know, having that extra layer of stigma there that you were talking about in the community, like how, like, it's even harder. Yeah. So it's really awesome that you can, like, go to this place and mm-hmm. and get the help that you need. Yeah, and I, I think um, being a professional and a parent um, makes it easier, you know, for me being, you know, the face of autism and black because they know I'm not just a professional, but a parent who understands. And I look like them. So they're like, okay, you know, this I'm comfortable with because, you know, when we're talking to individuals that don't look like us, um, it's it can be intimidating. We're not ready to, to let the wall down. But being that I look like them, it makes it, you know, a little easier. I still have to prove myself, you know, but it makes it easier. Absolutely. And um, Camille, um, who uh, kindly um, introduced us to you as well, um, she she had talked about that in her episode with us about when she was seeking support just in like the parent support groups, she was like, nobody there looks like me, you know? So how, how can they even, you know, really have an understanding? How can they be supportive, um, you know, when they don't really know mm-hmm. what living in my skin is like? Yeah. Um, so having that when you go into an IEP meeting, I mean, IEP meetings are stressful in and of themselves. Yes. And then, you know, walking into, well, you aren't living in my skin and it's hard to know exactly what, you know, I'm going through, um, let alone my child. That's just, yeah, that's a lot. It's most like, you know, even me going into my own IEP meeting, I'm uh, usually the only black person there besides my lawyer who, um, you know, helps me advocate for my daughter. You know, it's just us two and we're both black women. So, you know, it, it can be intimidating, you know, sitting with all of these, you know, professionals who are there, you know, and they're looking at your child from a certain perspective. Um, so yeah, it, it can be difficult. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that part of it because one of the things that I wanted to ask you about um, was one of the Facebook Um, topics that you recently covered um, and you did this on Facebook live I think this was just was this just yesterday or the day before that you did this yeah Tuesday Um, Mm. mm -hmm. okay and it was terms used in the school system including the excluded in conversations systematic racism in school Um, and what I caught of the of the part that I could watch was that you were speaking specifically about how the language used um, on black children's paperwork, like the IEP. Um, You were talking about how it can contribute to black children being seen as um, more behavior problems, more aggressive. Mm -hmm. Um, Say a little bit more about that because um, I, I, yeah, I just need to hear more about that. I think people need to be more aware of the words and why they matter. Yeah, so when it comes to to black children in the school system, you know, we 
again, have to navigate it, it differently. And when we're thinking about the terms that are used in the paperwork, we have to think about how this is going to impact that Black child. Um, the One of the examples I was talking about is that um, on my daughter's paperwork, they put um, doesn't resolve conflicts appropriately. Um, and, you know, the whole team knows she doesn't have behavior uh, issues. So when I saw that immediately, of course, I contacted the teacher who wrote it and she said, oh, you know, um, it's because she has uh, trouble resolving conflict internally because of her anxiety. And I'm like, well, you know, when people see that, that's not what they're going to think, especially when thinking of a black child. They're going to think that my child um, has a problem with her peers, that she starts, you know, anything and, you know, we're fighting, we're aggressive. That's what people are going to look when they say, does not know how to solve conflicts appropriately. They're not going to think she has anxiety and she's difficult on herself and has uh, issues um, resolving it internally. They're going to think, externally about what she's doing with other people. And that's what I'm saying. We have to be careful about the the terms that we're using on the paperwork or things that, you know, you write on the paperwork because this follows children. And, you know, her excuse was, oh, we talked to um, the, the teacher that she goes to the next grade and it's only in there for the elementary. And I'm saying, well, you don't know if she's going, she's only in second grade. Um, you don't know if for third grade, she'll be somewhere different. Um, and you're not there to explain exactly what that means. And they're looking at this one sentence in her paperwork. And now they've already started to place um, more perceptions on my child um, because she's she's a black child, you know, and we're already looking at black children in the, in the school system from a different perspective. You know, as I was saying on the live, when it comes to our black boys, they're no longer cute after two. You know, these are actual research yeah. studies that have been done. And, you know, in preschool, they're already looked at as a menace. Um, when we're looking at black uh -huh. babies in the school, we're already, you know, uh, adultifying them and, and seeing them as older than what they should. And because of these things, the expectations are so unrealistic. Our children constantly fail um, because they can't meet the expectations that they have for our children. You know, my son is four and they had expectations for uh, of somebody who was in second or third grade, he's in preschool, you know. So these are the things that they're thinking mm -hmm. about when it comes to our children. Wow, um, it makes sense. You're saying the term "adultifying them," mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and yes. saying it, you know, to to be clear, like we're we're making them older than they are. We're, yes. we're expecting more from them. So, of course, that's going to set them up for um, failure, at least in the person's eyes who's writing that paperwork, who's writing that goal or that IEP. Exactly, because they're looking at them as, you know, mm -hmm. in some instances, uh, depending on the age, as adults and, and doing things that adults should do. You know, but our children, you know, they're still, their brain is still forming. They're still trying to figure stuff out, you know. So when we don't allow the room uh, for mistakes and learning from those mistakes to happen, but rather, you know, penalize them for making a mistake that their white peer could make and not have the same um, disciplinary action, then it, it's harmful to our children. Well, especially when you take into mm -hmm. account mm -hmm. that kids with 
autism, ADHD, executive functioning skills can be one to three years behind their peers, you know, socially, um, academically sometimes. So you're, they're, you're already expecting more than, you know, their brains are, are wired to handle. And then you're also expecting them to, you know, your adult find them like it's, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that about the, the research that after two, oh my gosh. Yeah, they're, they're, it is, you know, they're no longer cute after two. And that's something that we as black parents have to be mindful. And also knowing that our children are often misdiagnosed or not diagnosed at all. So they're sitting in gen ed classrooms with no supports and services and being penalized for a diagnosis that is wrong or not, or hasn't been, you know, diagnosed yet. So these are things that, you know, we have to deal with. Yeah, that was something that I learned in um, the book, So You Want to Talk About Race. Um, mm-hmm. She talks a lot about the intersectionality of um, disability and race, and she talked about how um, Black students are much more likely to be diagnosed with a behavior disorder, or they're more likely to be diagnosed with conduct disorder than autism, mm-hmm. and that... I have some experience with that because my son, it was very hard to get an autism diagnosis because they were so focused on his mood disorder and his, um, you know, like ODD behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can only imagine like how much more difficult that is because they're not, you know, trying to break it down. And why is a child acting this way? It's, you know, like you said, there's an unconscious bias, there's a, a perception and that's what they're going with sometimes. And, oh my gosh. Yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. I mean, you know, getting our daughter's diagnosis was extremely difficult. And we're talking about somebody who is a therapist and their husband's a physician, you know, and we have resources and we are, we know what we're talking about when we go in these rooms and it was extremely difficult for us. So we're thinking about, you know, our, uh, you know, other black individuals who don't have the education or the resources and then they have to go and navigate this and how much harder is it for them if it was this difficult for us to get right Right. yeah that that resonates with me a lot and um because I'm always saying that to Sarah I'm like I'm a mental health therapist and I know about this stuff and what about the people who don't and you know like can't speak the same language and um I mean, that makes so much sense to also think about, you know, the DSM where we get, uh, it's like our Bible for me and Maria, where, you know, we get all our diagnoses and all the criteria and things like that. I mean, that for years, I don't know the current makeup or the current committee, um, but that's been put together by a bunch of old white guys for, Mm -hmm. you know, lack of better words. And you know, to have that criteria put together in that way. Uh, I mean, the autism diagnosis itself has expanded and contracted over the years. Yes. Um, but then when you have just a certain group of people who all look the same, putting it together, the criteria, and not taking into account, like you've talked about, Maria, the cultural differences or how it may show up differently, um, I mean, the the system itself is one that's flawed and one that we're struggling against. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
goes it, all the way to the top. It, it does, you know, because even within, you know, thinking about anxiety and depression, it looks extremely different in, you know, Black females, um, Black males, you know, so we're constantly misdiagnosed across the board. Um, the gap in diagnosis for autism uh, between white children and Black children is a year and a half. Um, when we're looking at Hispanic children, there's this two to two and a half years, you know, so it, it, it's, there's a gap that we do need to build a bridge so we can, you know, make it smaller. But, you know, the CDC just came out this year, um, a few months ago, to say that autism, the prevalence of autism is the same across races, as if we didn't know this, but they had to put it out this year, you know, and hopefully, you know, healthcare professionals will take that and understand that Black children do, um, do uh, get the diagnosis of autism, and they are autistic. Um, so, you know, maybe they will stop diagnosing us with a bipolar uh, disorder and ODD and ADHD um, rather than giving the um, ASD diagnosis. Yeah. Or just saying, oh, that's a bad kid. They just have behavior problems. Exactly. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or putting them in prison. Yes, school to prison pipeline. Oh. Serious. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and something okay. else that we, yeah. um, since we have boys, we don't talk about this a lot, but um, girls with autism present differently mm-hmm. and it can be more difficult for them to get a diagnosis. So I can only imagine how difficult it was to get a diagnosis for your black daughter. Yeah, it was difficult and she was young. Um, so that itself presented issues because across the board, we know that, um, you know, healthcare professionals don't really like to diagnose young when it comes to autism at least at that time. Leah's eight now. Um, she got her diagnosis at one and a half. Um, and of course, and being in the black community, that is not common that, you know, a black child gets a diagnosis that early, but it took a lot of effort on our parts as her parents to get the diagnosis, you know, several different appointments, a lot of money um, went into it as well. So, you know, and it took me sitting in the actual pediatric neurologist's office for a week to get the paperwork because he was not giving it to us. Even though he said, you know, he agrees that, you know, I agree with you that she is autistic, but we want to wait another year and a half. So I sat in his office for a week to make sure that I was going to leave. And I told him, I'll, I'll sit here as long as it takes. I don't care. Um, and he didn't take me seriously. But after that week, he was like, here's your paperwork. You know, please, please. Good for you. <laughs> well, and that's so frustrating because it can take a year and a half to on a waiting list to get therapies and to get treatment. And we hear all the time early intervention is key, but mm-hmm. yet it's almost impossible to get an early diagnosis. I mean, it it baffles me because when we're looking at the autism diagnosis, we're not looking at something that is rare, you know, so we would think, you know, our healthcare professionals would be more trained to be okay with giving the diagnosis. Me and my husband have this discussion all the time about his colleagues. (laughs) And I'm like, you know, you guys have to really get the training because you don't know. We started off with our child's pediatrician. You know, it started with me knowing, okay, yeah, she's, she has autism. She's autistic. 
So now we have to get the medical diagnosis. And it started with us going to her pediatrician who was like, you know, she was born early. She was a preemie, you know, we want to give her some time. It took me telling her, no, you know, I want to go down the avenue of getting her the diagnosis. And then she sent us to early steps. You know, going to early steps um, in itself can have a wait list. So getting there is difficult. Then you get there and you're meeting with all of them and they're like, okay, yes, we do agree she is autistic, but because, you know, she's not three, we don't want to give her the diagnosis, but then go to a pediatric neurologist. Finding a pediatric neurologist is like finding a needle in a haystack, you know, so you find one of them, then you have to wait on their waiting list. We get to him and he then makes us uh, go through a lot of DNA testing, um, looking uh, to rule out things that, of course, by the time we would have known if she had these other certain diagnoses and those tests were not covered by insurance. So we were paying thousands of dollars for this test for him to come back and say, yes, we do agree that she is autistic, but we also want to wait a year and a half. You know, many black parents are not going to to tell their professionals, no, you're you're incorrect. You know, mm -hmm. so they would have stopped a long time before and been way out of the early inter early intervention phase by the time their child got the diagnosis. You know, so these, and we're looking at somebody who's a therapist, their husband's a physician, we're telling you these things and you're still not listening to us about the importance of getting the diagnosis. And you as a professional know that it's important, but you're still not listening to us. You know, it would have been different if it was a white family. That mother probably wouldn't have had to sit in the office for a week to get her child's diagnosis. Oh my goodness. I, That's so frustrating. I think you're, you know, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, thinking back on um, some of my time, again, when I was working like full time as a mental health therapist, mm -hmm. um, I mean, I can absolutely look back on experiences now and just see how my own bias played into, you know, how I had worked with some of the clients that I worked with, um, whether or not to, like you said, give paperwork, whether or not to make a certain referral. Um, I mean, it's, it's terrible to say, but I can absolutely see that now, especially with how you're describing things. Um, and it just, it makes so much sense, um, yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, it, it can be different, uh, very difficult, you know, as, as I put on one of my um, posts is that, you know, they're always thinking that we're looking for a check. And I'm, you know, I'm like, you know, I don't know what check you guys think I'm looking for, but if you do find out, let me know. Because, you know, one, raising <laughs> a child with a disability is expensive. And if you find out, then let me know, because I will sign up for it. But, you know, as far as I'm not in this for a check, we know that the most of the money that we would get would be going to, you know, services for our child. When we're looking at insurance, they don't like to cover a lot, and then they don't may not cover the whole thing. You know, mm -hmm. we're looking at a lot of out-of-pocket expenses that a lot of families cannot afford. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. oh, um, wow. I'm just I'm kind of taking this all in in terms of the education that you're providing to us today and um, just kind of the wisdom that you're sharing with us. And I so, so appreciate it. Um, you were actually speaking in a Forbes article recently. Um, 
and you were talking um, very specifically about um, autistic black children and what would happen when they would meet the police, should they have to meet the police. Um, can you say a little bit more about that, some of the stuff that you had kind of said in that Forbes article? Yes, most definitely. Um, this is a, a fear that we as black parents have had way before, you know, um, George Floyd happening. You know, this has been going on a while, and this is one of the top concerns parents come to me about, um, and one that we don't have a lot of, you know, actual uh, answers for because, you know, there's nothing that's really being done out here for us. Um, but my black child, you know, having an interaction with the police is a, a top concern. Um, with her being autistic, we know that there could be comprehension issues. We know that they could, you know, have a autistic meltdown in the midst of meeting an officer because their anxiety has risen and they don't, you know, quite understand what's going on. They're afraid. Um, so a lot of their characteristics could be amplified during that interaction. So my concern is that one, with her being black, that's the first thing they're going to see. You know, if they ask her name and she needs time to process it and she doesn't say it right away, she automatically begins to look suspicious because she's a black, a black female. Um, you know, then if she starts to stem, you know, they're going to think anything but stemming. They're going to think, you know, she's on drugs or something or she's, you know, trying to hide something. So these are things that we constantly have to think about when our child may have an interaction with the police. And, you know, how do we prevent our child, you know, from getting shot and killed and hopefully coming home to us? And mm -hmm. the answers are, you know, at a minimum of what we can actually do because the training that police officers receive is just not enough. They don't understand, one, um, about individuals who have disabilities so that they don't understand. Then they already have their, their own biases against black people, which we see now, you know? So when we're talking about the intersection of race and disability and we're talking about our children having an interaction with the police, it is such a fear because we can't control what's gonna happen in that interaction. Even if I'm there, there's a chance that, you know, I could be shot and killed as well, mm -hmm. being her black parent. So it's, you know, the answers are, are not enough. You know, the fear is real. What do we do? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the answer is police officers really need to be trained. Um, and there needs to be a, a movement of when they are called and when they are not as a, as a black parent. Um, I was having this conversation with my mom and sister, you know, I would be scared to call the police in certain instances, especially if it was against somebody who was white, because they're probably going to think I'm the issue first. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're just scared to even call the police. Our children, you know, are scared of having interactions with the police. And now here in Florida, because we'd had the school shooting here, um, you know, there are police officers in, in every school mm -hmm. and our children now have to have these interactions with police officers in the school um, when we already know the history of how police officers treat us as black individuals. Mm -hmm. So it's a scary time for us that we don't have a lot of answers on how to protect our children as best we can 
You know, I mean, my child is eight and I'm already scared of when she, you know, is going to be 16 and, and driving and, and going out and trying to let her have that independence, but at the same time being fearful that she may not come back home. Right. Um, she will be shot and killed. So it's something that, you know, we have a constant fear of, but no real answers on how to make it better. Mm-hmm. Um. And I have been aware of at least the intersectionality of um, disability and, and folks meeting, disabled folks who are meeting the police, um, mostly because of the kind of the social work work I did before, like out in the field before I was in an office full time. Um, and there was just stigma in general in terms of that mental health piece of it, you know, the, the cops being called for something going on with one of the mental health clients that I worked with. Um, So adding, you know, having that layer in there of being black or being a person of color um, or indigenous and, you know, having the police called in that situation where there's a disability and they happen to be black as well has got to be just off the charts scary. Yeah, very scary. One, because, you know, we don't even know, especially when we're talking about autism, you know, as, as we all know, there is no look of, of, of autism. So, you know, my, my daughter is able to, to navigate the world, you know, in a place that can be seemingly neurotypical to those who don't know her. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when they're coming up on her, they're not going to see a disability. So even if she does have to um, let them know her diagnosis, which she shouldn't even have to do that, um, they they probably still wouldn't believe her. Mm-hmm. But the fact that as Black individuals, we have to, um, you know, let people know our medical diagnosis or, you know, our, our disabilities is an issue just because we want you to treat us as human. So I have to disclose personal information to you, you know, that I probably normally would not, but just so you can understand these are, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So that the, the officer can extend humanity to you or to your daughter. Exactly. And that's an issue. And then when we're looking inside of the school system, you know, here in Florida, it's called uh, a Baker Act when they go and, you know, they take you for three days to the to the psychiatric unit, the hospital, Mm -hmm. We're looking at a disproportionate number of black students, most of them who do have um, some sort of disability being uh, having police called on them because the school lacks training on how to intervene and, and best handle certain things. So they're calling police officers on these children. We already know that, you know, the likelihood of of us being treated fairly is slim. Um, These children are handcuffed, put in the back of a squad car and then taken to a a hospital or sometimes a precinct. That is a traumatic experience for a child. We're talking about children as young as five who are experiencing these things. Mm -hmm. You know, so there has to be you know, more trainings on better intervention besides calling the police. Yeah, absolutely. And other, other choices, not just the police to be trained better, but, um, you know, I'm going to be honest, being a white woman and hearing defund the police, my head's been around Mm because I was like, what are we talking about? Yeah. Um, 
But after doing the research and the reading and having my own experience, um, you know, being that um, kind of in the field mental health worker and working with the homeless population and the severely mentally ill population that I worked with, um, we only avoided some disasters because at, at one point we had a section of police officers who were specially trained to go on mental health calls. Um, I don't know that we have that anymore. I, you know, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but, um, you know, it not only keeps the person safe who you're, you know, trying to call the police on, but I think it's also about trying to keep the officers safe and, um, you know, trying to make it like I hear, you know, they do too much. They do too much. They're, they're responsible for too much. I think, uh, we have asked the the police force to do too much recently. Um, And so I would, I would think it would make sense to want to take some of that off of their hands and then put it in the hands of professionals who um, are trained to work with people who have autism or other mental health issues um, and have them come out and, and take care of those situations. I think that it just makes sense to me. Um, and I, I hope that that's something that we're headed towards. Yeah, I, I completely uh, agree. You know, I think that a lot of times they're called out to, to handle things that they shouldn't have to handle. They're called out to handle the, the Baker acts, you know, here. Um, and, you know, they don't have, most of them don't have any mental health training. You know, and again, that is a traumatic experience for most anybody who is going to be handcuffed, put in the back of a squad car. Uh, for having a mental illness, you know, that is a traumatic experience. And it's a negative experience that continues to, you know, put stigmas around mental health in general, you know, so we have to to get other professionals that are trained to handle these and the interventions could be a lot smoother, a lot better, you know, because especially when we're talking about uh, black individuals, because if, you know, the police are coming and you're seeing that, of course, anxiety is going to rise. Of course, you're going to seem as if you may be resisting, but you're really fearful. You're really scared because we know what happens when we're taken into police custody. Sometimes we don't come home, you mm-hmm. know, and the reality of it. So it's, it's about getting the um, other professionals who are trained, you know, to handle other calls because the police do not need to be called for it, for everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're expecting our police officers to be social workers with guns. Yes, yes. And it and doesn't just, work. <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've, I've had to call the police for my son. Um, you know, he's been in, he's been hospitalized several times. He's been in full blown psychosis mm-hmm. several times, several suicide attempts. Um, and I've had to call the police for help three times actually. And the last time I called the officer told me next time you call me, I'm going to take your son in the back of my car. I'm going to take him to Juvie. And he was eight years old at the yeah, time. That is- and so now I know that's not an option for me. I can't call the cops for help anymore, but there's no other services here. There's no other option. So hopefully I'm not in a position where I can't handle him again because I don't know what I would do. That, that just, it, it actually disgusts me. <laughs> um, the fact that, first of all, that's an eight-year-old. We're talking about a, a, a child, uh, you know, that's not even in preteen stage. 
you know, an eight-year-old and you're threatening that when we're just looking for help. If we know that that's the only access that we get and then you've just burned that bridge, you've left the parents in a space where they have no resources. And we know what happens when parents don't have resources. We see it on the news all the time. Things start happening then to the child, not saying that for your particular case, but you know, for parents who feel like they don't have anything else because you've just you know, completely tore that relationship apart by threatening me and, and weaponizing the fact that I can't even call 911 in an emergency. You know, that is very harmful to parents and then what they then do next. Yeah, it's, Oof. yeah. Um, I'm kind of wondering, you know, in terms of, you said you're in Florida, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm kind of wondering, um, you know, with you kind of being in the middle of doing the work and the organizations that you're trying to educate, the individuals that you're trying to educate, um, are you seeing stuff in Florida that locally, like any changes that, again, give you hope for kind of that meaningful um, change? So when it comes to Florida, we are a different, we're very different here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you've probably seen us on the news many a times for some quite ridiculous stuff. So mm-hmm. Listen, if it ain't Ohio, it's Florida. So yeah, right there with you. <laughs> So, you know, my, my, when I set the bar for Florida, it's not that high because I already know we just don't get things quite right here. But um, I am pushing for one, starting at the local level with our schools and what should be done, you know, starting with our police departments, because we have to start at that point. You know, when we're talking about our children having these interactions, we have to think about not only the community, but what's happening in the school, you know, as I was saying. So, you know, we're hoping for a change and we're lobbying and trying to change policies and, you know, making it known that these problems exist. Um, but we'll, we'll see what happens, you know, as far as actually policies changing, you know, with us having, having had that um, school shooting down here, you know, now there's the police officers who are in the schools with guns. Now they're trying to pass laws that where actual teachers can have, you know, armed, can be armed inside the school. And, you know, that's scary for black parents because we know it's only going to take one instance for one of our children to be shot and killed by an actual teacher. So, you know, these are the things that we're up against when we're talking about trying to change policies. So, and then we, of course, know about the stand your ground law here in Florida, um, of course, because of Trayvon Martin and, and what happened with that. So there's many things that need to be changed in Florida that, you know, we've been trying to change for a long time. Um, so we'll see what happens next since this, um, the momentum behind what happened, unfortunately, with, with George Floyd is continuing. So we'll see what happens. Uh-huh. And that's something that we're uh, hearing a lot. Um, Camille talked about that too, about starting at the local level mm-hmm. and changing things there. Yeah. Cause you know, it's easier for me to one, go into my local schools and talk about, you know, my child going here and, you know, being a parent in the community. 
um, rather than first just going ahead and taking it on a district level or a state level, you know, so changing within the school and letting people know this is what we did here and then this is how it can impact other counties, other states. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in, in terms of speaking of that, kind of that work, like you're talking about doing things locally, um, do you have kind of any words or ideas for us in terms of how can we as white people, white parents, um, you know, how can we, we're in the autism community as well, kind of the counterparts here for you, um, what do you need from us? You know, we need strong allies who are there to to help and, you know, hold these uh, organizations, schools accountable, you know, hold the police officer accountable for taking anti-racism trainings, you know, and not just a, a one-hour course that, you know, they don't really have to pay attention to. We're talking about a deep course that actually, you know, challenges all of these, you know, um, biases that they already have and, and teaches them how to interact with black people and black people with disabilities. Um, you know, teachers need anti-racism training, staff at the school need anti-racism training to understand how to, you know, reach the other students who are black, indigenous, people of color um, from a cultural standpoint and taking the culture into consideration when thinking about these, these children. You know, it needs to, to be something that has to happen. We know in schools that, you know, they're not required to take these trainings. It's an elective if, you know, that's what they see fit. It needs to be required. You know, they need to be learning how to have um, curriculum that is decolonized, you know, that, that includes black people, that tells true stories of black people. Um, so, you know, we need to start there by pushing you know, local level schools and um, police departments and organizations to be held accountable for actually making sure that they are doing the work that needs to be done because they're interacting with us the most. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing from you and kind of taking away tonight from our discussion, um, so we as the the white people and the, the the white parents, the counterparts to you in the autistic community, we need to first follow your lead. Um, you know, you're out there, you're experiencing it directly, you're living it. Um, we need to hear you and believe you. And then we need to step up at our local levels and, you know, support um, the movement in terms of keeping the leaders, the teachers, law enforcement accountable in terms of making the changes and, and getting that anti-racism education and anti-racism work done. Exactly. Did I miss anything? <laughs> Not at all. You, you summed it up perfectly. <laughs> well, I think, I think it's also important that in addition to all those things, we're doing that work in ourselves. Yes. Yes. You know, and like Maria was talking about, it's hard. It's hard to do. You know, it's, you're really examining your, inner being and it's uncomfortable but it's so important mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it is def it's definitely difficult you know and we as black people we do we have to do the work as well you know within ourselves you know so it's not just for you know white people do the work you know we all have to do you know work on some level as well mm -hmm. um, but we definitely want 
allies that listen to us and believe us and, you know, don't speak for us, um, but rather speak with us, you know, and let us share our stories and let us say what's happening to us, you know, so that's what we're looking for when we're talking about being a, a good ally. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, to kind of close things out, I'm kind of wondering um, two things. One, how are you kind of taking care of yourself in this time? Like, what's some of the things that are filling you up? And then you do another important piece of work of, about self-care and affirmation. Um, talk a little bit about that, that book that you've put out. So I have the uh, self-care affirmation book, um, which is 52 affirmations that help you create a self-care routine. We know that, you know, across the board, individuals, especially those who are parents who, um, to a child who has a disability, we do not think about ourselves a lot. Um, so self-care seems so... Um, unrealistic to us and when we think about self-care we always think about somebody who's on the beach you know with a, a nice little um, alcoholic beverage and that you know while that is a form of self-care we definitely want to push being more um, mentally physically spiritually um, okay in, in dealing with those things so that is what the self-care affirmation book does you can use it in a monthly format or a weekly format to take you through the year and you learn how to set boundaries that are realistic for you and they are about your core values because a lot of times people think boundary setting is for the people in their lives and not themselves you know so you go through how to set a good boundary you know how to follow through with that boundary you know how to build a supportive um network of individuals how to know and be okay with giving your permission uh, giving yourself permission to say no to people and and mean it and be okay with it you know dealing with yourself um and making a routine for yourself and that's what the book does wonderful and Where how do we can get people... that book because i need yeah. that in my life yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes so you can go to um, autisminblack.org slash self-care book. And then it's also on Amazon if you look up the self-care affirmation book or look up my name, Maria Davis-Pierre. Okay. And we will definitely put that in the show notes so people can kind of copy and paste and make it real easy to find. Um, so you know everyone's getting it for Christmas now. I know, right? It's like, okay, gifts are done. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, Maria, thank you again so much for joining us tonight. Um, you've really given us some stuff to think about and to continue to work on. And I just, I really appreciate um, you sharing your story with us. And um, I'm excited for people to come find you and learn more about what you do and follow your lead in terms of um, helping make changes in the lives of the kiddos and the, the families that you work with. I thank both of you for, for having me on here and yeah. listening for to coming. run my mouth. So <laughs> <laughs> no, this is awesome. I learned so much. Thank you. Good. Guys go listen to her podcast. It's so good. Thank it's so good. You. I listened to the one on emotional regulation and I, listen to it on my walk actually I'm like I need to listen to this again when I can take notes but I got so much good information out of it 
Yes, that was a one of my favorite episodes with Dr. Um, Anne Louise Lockhart, and she really broke it down for for everybody about emotional regulation and how we as parents need to be emotionally regulated when we're dealing with our children. Because if we're not, how do we expect them to be? Mm-hmm. Right. It makes it made so much sense. I loved it. Thank so good. You. I can't wait to listen to all the episodes. <laughs> Thank you. And season three starts July seventeenth, so be on the lookout. All right. Wonderful. Then we'll get this one out just in time. And then people can go on over and help to yours. Yeah. Uh, And Maria, thank you again. Come back anytime. We loved having you. Thank you. Thank you. And um, Sarah, I'm glad we got to do this again today. Yeah, me too. (laughs) So um, as always, here's to the um, complexities in our journeys, um, the highs and lows, the joys and sorrows, And uh, may those who observe us do so with compassion, especially for amazing kids. Um, Thanks again, guys, for joining us tonight. We're so happy that you came back and listened to another episode. Thanks, guys. Bye.